0: Welcome to the Growth Investing Secret Podcast. This is Calvin Sito. And this is Jonathan Ang. The reason why we started this podcast is to help each household to have at least one full-time investor by investing to high growth companies called Superstocks. We didn't come from well to do backgrounds and after many years of investing, we finally became full-time investors before the age of 30. This was only possible with growth investing. Our mission is to help both beginner and experienced investors get better investment returns. Don't settle for less it is very possible that you can achieve out-of-the-world results. And we have proven that it is possible through the returns of our community. So now, let's be committed to learn, dive in and get started on today's episode. All content from participants shall not be treated as professional advice or recommendation to buy or sell any position in any financial-related instruments. The content is made available for educational purpose only. We may buy any securities mentioned and we may stand to benefit financially if they rise in value. You should seek independent financial and legal advice before making any financial decisions. Hey Thomas, it's an absolute pleasure to have you with us. It's been a weird two years since COVID-19 and many things have changed. Um, you know, in Singapore where we are living in, companies are downsizing their office spaces. Uh, rental markets are affected. Uh, we have less uh, social events, uh, more Zoom sessions like this. It's already December twenty twenty one, and this year went by so quickly for I think all of us. So how has your year been?
1: Yeah, Kelvin, thanks for having me. Yeah, so um, behind every crisis, I always believe there will be a silver lining, and you know, new opportunities will arise. So when the lockdown began, um, a lot of people started going online, and that was when I started my blog, right? And you know, because there was so much um, attention going on for investing content, um, and so I really stepped on the gas pedal to try and you know engage my readers, come up with content. And whenever I try to publish content it's really based on, you know, the kind of questions my friends are always asking me about investing topics. And that was when, after I started writing, you know, I started to get connected with a lot of investors like yourself and also investors from abroad. So that really, um, change the whole investing game and the opportunities that, that was available for me out there. So, so it's been a great um, one to two years. Um, not easy, but um, it has been a fulfilling one when it comes to engaging other investors and engaging with my readers. Oh, nice. So
0: during COVID, you still have launched uh, one of your projects. Uh, it's got steady compounding website.
1: Um, what is it about and what inspired you to uh, build this project? Yeah, so, you know, there's this quote that I really like. If you want to learn something, read about it. If you want to understand something, write about it. And if you want to master something, you got to teach it. This quote is by Yogi Bahan. And the thing about it, when I was first starting, right, um, I, I really started out with the goal of addressing investing questions by my friends. Because I, I think there's a lot of content out there which doesn't go exactly super in-depth. So when I write my content, I like to give case studies. So it's not just about theory, but we are also able to apply it. Then over time, as the readership start to grow, um, you know, I started to see that there was actually an opportunity for me to go even more in-depth. And that was when I started to do this full-time at SteadyCompounding.com where I write like super in-depth research reports um, for my members, telling them like what are the business model like, what is the competitive advantage of this company, what is the industry landscape, valuation, so on and so forth. Yeah, and, and so I, I really like to go super in-depth and offer the kind of insights to my members so that, you know, they can really learn about these businesses and not just see them as stock tickers. Oh,
0: that's really great. So for the listeners, personally, I'm a subscriber as well. So check it out. So Thomas, you know, let's begin with one thing that uh, I think all of us would really want to know. Tell us about your life story, because I've been friends with you for for quite some time. I think we we come from similar backgrounds. We have to really uh, work our way upwards. And I think both of us were also former uh, scholars. So tell us about your life story to the listeners. How was it like for you growing up and what motivated you to start investing? And how's the journey been like for
1: you? So I, I come from a background where both my parents didn't have a job for most of their productive years, right? And so I started working various odd jobs at a very young age, from being cashier at departmental stores, to giving up flyers, going door to door to sell ice cream, so on and so forth. So at a very young age, I had to play defense, right? Because electricity bills were constantly overdue. Sometimes it would get cut off. Then, you know, school fees was over overdue as well then often my teachers would you know, have to pull me aside, speak to me and ask if things are okay at home. You know, so it was difficult to find a role model to copy when it comes to finances and also for career advice. But I'm very thankful that uh, there's plenty of books I could turn to um, because the library, there's just abundance of books, right? And I remember the first finance book um, that opened my eyes was actually Rich Dad Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki. It's a very popular book. It has a very good why, not exactly a very good how-to book, right? It doesn't show you like how you should do it as much as... but, But it gave me a very strong why that I needed to start to save, invest, and eventually, you know, putting the assets to work, we will eventually get independence. And so I started to have a very strong goal, an end goal in mind that I wanted to grow my productive assets assets as fast and as much as possible such as it is able to cover my expenses because it seems like it is a ticket for me to leave my current life behind, right? And so I really tried to optimize my life that way. And in fact, I love investing so much that when I was younger, my dream was actually to become a fund manager. Right. But the thing is, education fees is expensive, right? Especially when it comes to tertiary education. So back then I had the idea that in order to make ends meet, I had to do everything I needed to do to secure scholarship and get into a good university because that just seems like the sensible thing to do. So I focused a lot on getting good grades, having a lot of CCAs, attending networking events, the whole nine yards of preparation. And like yourself, (laughs) I took a government scholarship, a bonded one. And even though I knew at the time I wasn't cut up for that nature of work, because my dream was really to do investment related work. And so I neglected pursuing my passion, you know, and do it at the sideline. I really focused on growing my assets, thinking that uh, once I have financial security, I will be happy. But here's the thing, not having money will make me very miserable, but having money may not necessarily make me happy. So that was a big moment in my life whereby I I knew I needed to stop neglecting my younger self, the younger Thomas that dream of, you know, pursuing his passion. And so this year, early this year, I quit my job and became a full-time investor. I focused on my blog full-time whereby I write this in-depth research report for my members. Just listening to you, I have goosebumps. I can relate so much to what
0: you've read through. I I think it takes a lot of uh, tenacity to go through a life difficulties and you can either have a breakthroughs or breakdowns, right? But for you, you, you have multiple breakthroughs in your life. And I also believe it's not about the cuts that we have in our life, but how we play the cards. That's a lot of wisdom from you. And I think I want to thank you first, you know, for being so vulnerable and sharing your story. I think that will give a lot of listeners an idea to say, hey, you know, if your lives are currently like you before you started your, your blog, you know, they could have a fair chance to succeed in life. So you have taken a bold step to leave your prestigious job with a government agency. How's that been for you? Because in a society like Singapore, there could be a lot of questions asked. Why did you uh, leave such a good job? And I also think that you can call yourself a put investor right now. So could you give a listeners a sneak preview of what goes behind your daily life? Do you just sit in front of a computer over 16 hours a day? Or what would you do to become a better investor every single day?
1: Yeah, so leaving my job was definitely a scary decision, right? And many people were telling me I was crazy. I, I remember vividly like when I was nearing the end of my bond, my boss actually told me like I, I will be rotated for my fourth or fifth rotation, like to the Ministry of Finance. But I, I just told them like, you know, you should probably be choosing someone else because by the time you rotate me, I would have left the organization by then. And then they were shocked. And and so when I tender my resignation, right, I actually sent an email to a lot of my colleagues to explain my decision on why I leave the company. And it was really the Jeff Bezos regret minimization framework, right? And Bezos, he actually used this mental model for approaching a lot of tough life decisions. And I I think it may be helpful for listeners out there. Like if you are struggling to make a really tough decision, um, this, this mental model may help you. So what Bezos did was that he imagined that he was 80 years old and asked himself, If he were to look back today and would he regret not actually starting an online bookstore back in 1994? You know, something that didn't exist at the time and many people haven't even heard of the internet. His boss, right? He was a very successful investment banker earning more than hundred thousand, which is a lot of money back then in 1994. And he was saying like, you know what, Jeff, I I think starting an online bookstore is a great idea, but it's probably better idea for somebody who didn't already have such a good job. But Basil made the decision with his heart, right? Not with his head and the rest is history. And when I'm 80 and reflecting back, I want to minimize the number of regrets that I have in my life. And we may think that many of our regrets stem from errors of commission, but in reality, most of our regrets are acts of omission. It is the things we didn't try, the risk we didn't take or the path we didn't travel. And these are usually the things that haunt us, right? And really this framework is the thing that helped me think beyond the moment. And it helped me look past all the noises, the fear, the doubt that will be holding me back. Because what looks risky in two to three years, right? Uh, may look less risky or staying in our current state may be even riskier if you were to look from a decade or two point of view, you know? And, and that really changed my perspective. And when we are looking from a 10, 20 year time horizon, we will make decisions uh, in a very different way.
0: Wow. That's a lot of wisdom. So everyone, I think, I think Thomas shared a lot of wisdom. Um, this is something for you to uh, consider, you know, I, I think the framework from Jeff, I think that's something that I've learned from Thomas personally, and it helped me shape certain decisions I make in my life. So Thomas, let's, let's talk a little bit about being a full-time investor, right? Cause a lot of people, Saying that this full time investor it means sitting in front of the computer 16 hours per day. So what goes behind your life? Would you like to share a little
1: bit? Yeah, so I usually wake up around 5 a.m. This is really more out of a habit than intentional because uh, when I was juggling between school and you know work CCS and whatnot, I, I usually wake up, start my day around 4:30 to 5. So so that habit stuck around with me. And the first 90 minutes from waking up, right, is when our brain is really primed for learning. So that 90 minutes is very important to me. So the the previous night, I would have a list of things I want to read or study. It could be annual report, it could be blog articles, white papers, fund manager letters, etc. So then first 90 minutes is strictly reading and learning and then I try and internalize them by jotting down notes at the end. Then after that, I'll get a short break, get some sunlight. Reason for the sunlight is because I want to get my circadian cycle right. Sunlight in the morning and at evening, right before the sunset, is very important to make sure that your sleep cycle is right. Then after that, it will be two to three hours of writing. It could be blog posts, um, deep dives, or you know it could even be for social media, always churning out uh, a lot of content. Then when I hit a wall, that's where I, I head to the gym. And this is very important for me, like not just for health reasons, uh, for mental health. And also this is where I tune in to all the audiobooks and podcasts because the journey there working out and all that, you know, it it gives me a solid two hours of catching up on, you know, what the best podcasts I I listen to. So I I often listen to podcasts like Invest Like The Best, Huberman Lab for, and Team Ferry Show, or even Acquired um, for VC related topics. And the afternoon uh, is where I try and take it a bit slower. Um, this is where I usually arrange all my interviews, podcast interviews or networking with other investors. You know, otherwise, I'll just usually continue with reading and writing. Then in the evening, I will wind down with uh, stretching or just journaling, um, just to, just to make sure my thoughts are all captured in. And, you know, I try and be as mindful as possible.
0: Nice. So I think that's a lot of learning. I think being a board investor, it means also being a learning machine and um, getting the health right in check. All right? Sounds great. So Thomas, let's move on to the next segment, right? So I think for the listeners, you would like to learn about, you know, what's your investing framework, because there's different styles of investing, there's value investing, there's growth investing, there's turnaround investing and, and whatnot. So uh, what was your investing style that brought you uh, tremendous success and Over the years, how has it
1: been evolved? Yeah, it it has definitely evolved over the years, right? From deep value, dividend investing to growth at a reasonable price. And eventually today, I'm I'm really looking at uh, companies that are able to grow for a very long time, right? And the number one question I always ask myself when I make any investment decision or when I study companies is why does this company deserve to be bigger 10 years from today? And there are really a few traits that demonstrate extremely robust and resilient growth, right? And one of the things that I really like is from Nick Slip from Nomad Investment Partnership, right? Skilled Economic Shed. And at the heart of it, right, it really means as a company grows larger, it is able to spread its fixed costs over a large base it becomes more profitable, but rather than keeping all the profits to themselves, they would choose to pass them on to their customers. And in turn, their customers would reward them with much higher sales volume. And Costco is really the poster boy for this, right? They only do 10% markup compared to their competitors, Target and Walmart. Target markup 30%, and then Walmart markup 25%. So for example, like if we were to buy toothpaste, right, a tube of toothpaste that costs $1 would be on sales in Costco for $1.10. at Target, and then $1.25 at Walmart. And then as a consumer, naturally, I want to go where the cheapest toothpaste is, right? If it's within my convenience, And this mental model, right, actually work extremely well when the total addressable market is super huge and the product is relatively commoditized. Commerce is one example, right? Costco and Amazon. And another industry like I like to look into is fintech when using this model to to look at things. So when I look at companies like WISE, uh, previously known as TransferWise, they're six times cheaper than banks and also cheaper than a lot of other fintech players. And when the cost starts to come down as they start to scale right in their revenue they keep on passing these savings back uh, by constantly lowering their fees for their users and in turn you know users trust them for for being the lowest cost fintech solution and then reward them with more businesses so this is one of the kind of businesses I really like the next one would be network effects which is really, really super strong, right? And um, the company I want to talk about is some a company that you like and I also like very much, C-Limited, um, whereby every user that comes on, right, it really makes the platform a lot stronger. And C-Limited is not just Garena, uh, Free Fire, and it's also Shopee, right? And when we look at Shopee, where there's an abundance of users, it will start attracting a lot of merchants. And when there's more selection, it in turn would attract even more users. So every incremental participant on this platform makes it stronger. And one of the most misunderstood factors about Shopee is that it is unprofitable, right? They need to keep subsidizing every single order. But here's the thing, for network effect to get going, right, it's very difficult. But once you manage to start the network effect going successfully, it becomes very difficult to stop. And when I try to explain this, I like to use the analogy of a shopping mall. Like when we go shopping, would you like to go to a mall with a lot of shops or just a few shops? Usually, we want to go to one that where there's a lot of variety, right? And different malls will charge different rental rates. Usually, it is those malls that are in prime location that are able to charge a high rental. And when we think about it, right, it is really because they have a high traffic volume. And likewise for e-commerce platform, when you have a high traffic pool, right? Sooner or later, you will be able to charge a higher take rate. And when we look at a good shopping mall, they don't just charge high rental and bring in the traffic, right? They also do a lot of things to spruce up the mall, try and get it on top of consumer mind. They will bring in influencers, you know, um, YouTube, social media, or they will get celebrities to come down to host events. You know, that that brings in food traffic and makes them more, you know, occupy a higher mind share in consumers' brain. And so when you look at what Shopee has done, this, this is exactly what they are trying to do, right? They engage international celebrities like Blackpink or Jackie Chan. You know, they gamify the platform. They keep on trying to bring consumers back in and reinvesting back into the ecosystem. Yeah, so this is another business that I really like a lot.
0: Nice. So there's a lot of
1: wisdom right there.
0: So, you know, I think when it comes to investing, a lot of people would look at it and say, well, these are great companies to purchase, but would you ever set, or, or rather, how, how do you actually apply your price discipline to such companies? Are you okay to overpay? And, and in what situations where you absolutely would not overpay for companies?
1: I think when engaging in the more traditional companies, I definitely would not overpay. Companies that are relatively mature, like for example, Starbucks or this, I would be very price sensitive because usually for these companies, their growth rate are starting to slow down. And, you know, a lot of times we are going for the reversion to the mean. We are waiting for the multiple to go back to, to the average. But when it comes to a lot of these growth company valuation methods, right? But what is more important is getting the quality of the company, right? And the thing that's tough about valuing this company is that there's always a lot of optionalities. Like if we look back to Citi, they started out as just Garina, you know, then they suddenly grow out uh, Shopee. And then, you know, in more recent times, uh, past two years, you know, C-Money, you know, these companies are always reinvesting and scaling their operations And, and it's tough to value them. But as investors, it's important to look forward. So after, usually what I do is that I will apply a growth rate to the revenue, then at the end of the revenue figure i would apply a a margin profile to it like what's the what's the abit margins going to be like and apply a multiple to it and if it's super overvalued i will have the patience to wait for it at least until it gives me a very decent return of 10 to 15 percent if i were to look back from the price today if it doesn't then then i'll just i'll just wait it out yeah
0: that's really great thanks so much for sharing So I, you know, I think investing has changed so much since the days where we have started, we have the digital transformation upon us. And I think technologies are just gonna accelerate a lot of things and new business models is gonna be created. But let's look back a little bit, right? At some point in our journey, we probably have screwed up in our uh, investing decisions, right? Perhaps uh, not buying a stock, selling a stock too early, or buying a stock too high. And it's very painful. But in retrospect, I think we all became good investors. So for our listeners, right, if you don't mind sharing, what are some of the painful mistakes that you have made and some of the learning lessons you had along the way?
1: Yeah, so the biggest mistake for me is actually not buying certain things, refusing to look forward right, and relying very heavily on past data. And, and this is what I mean. At the heart of valuing a company, right, the value of a company is its future cash flow discounted to present. So when it comes to filtering this company, I I didn't want to assign an extremely high growth rate or put into any forecast that they are able to grow at a super high growth rate for multiple years. And I would only hit on companies, uh, choose companies that were cheap due to temporary hiccups. For example, like for Starbucks, when Howard Schultz was stepping down, the share price came down a lot or Facebook during Cambridge Analytica, or Google during its Antitrust. You know, those were good buying moments. Nothing wrong with those. In fact, they gave decent returns. But I was missing out on a group of companies, you know, that were generating huge returns, especially within this decade. And it wasn't until I listened to a podcast and this... This guy behind Bluegrass Capital, if you can remember, he was one of the OG on Twitter, right? He was, he said something that really stuck in my head. If a company has good unit economics, it doesn't matter whether or not they are profitable today, right? If their unit economics make sense, even if they're showing net loss today doesn't matter. And and so that thing stuck in my head for a really long time because it was going against my existing belief, right? Something that sat in my head, like Warren Buffett is always saying, you want to buy companies that has a lot of free cash flow, you know, companies that are profitable, like you don't want to invest in technology companies. And so that, that stuck in my head for quite some time. And and ever since I heard that, you know, it, it really made me want to go deeper into this realm of thinking. And, you know, it's only after extensive studying of like, other hedge fund letters, you know, looking at how things play out for Amazon and Netflix over the years. Then I, I learned that to analyze this company, we need to use a different framework and, and not what we typically use for the more traditional style of value investing. Nice.
0: That's really great. So I, I guess there's a lot of unlearning and relearning. And I think the most difficult part about being an investor is to unlearn what we have uh, initially have learned. Uh, it takes a lot of courage as well. So there's great stuff over there. Now let's move on to certain things that is you know, on the minds of many investors and we'd like to get some of your uh, opinions as well. So the first thing here is that the last few weeks, many stocks have dropped uh, severely, right? Talk about C, I think have corrected close to 30%. But since then have recovered. We have companies like Mercado Libre as well, dropped about 30% and many others. So it is very unsettling, especially for those who have just started out investing. But for us, we know that volatility is very common in the stock market. And we have seen uh, many multi-baggers being created in the past two decades, despite so much economic uh, uncertainty. So how are you feeling right now uh, with all this volatility? And what's your mental model towards approaching uh, volatility as well?
1: Yeah, so for volatility, I like how Howard Marks described it, right? That the stock market is really like a pendulum. Although the midpoint of the arc best describes the location on average, but it seldom spends its time right in the middle. Instead, it's always swinging to extreme, right? But inevitably, it will always move back to the midpoint. Now, this oscillation between euphoria and depression, right, is one of the most dependable features of the stock market. swinging from one end to the other is like night and day. Definitely will happen. And you know, there's two things that's relatively certain in the stock market. One is that it will rise over time Although not in a straight line, but most of the time, it will generate wealth for investors if we hold it for the long term. And number two is that big drawdowns will definitely come. So investors, we must do what we can to prepare for this drawdown. And so there are always a few rules that I have for myself is that uh, number one is definitely don't invest money you need for the short term. Number two is don't leverage. In this most recent drawdown, right, last week, I have a few friends who got margin call during the, the drawdown. And going on margin is not for everyone. Even if you don't get margin call, it messes with your emotional state. You, you first must access that you are really an investor who can tolerate this kind of volatility before you consider going on margin. Now, the third thing that is not frequently talked about is that you want to make sure you are adequately insured because medical bills are expensive. Like I, I had a knee operation which cost about $60,000. But because of insurance, you know, it it never interrupted my compounding process at all. And, you know, the number one rule of compounding is we don't want to interrupt it. And lastly, the most important thing is as investors, uh, we must know that business fundamentals don't change that much. It is the stock price that, that is always changing. And we want to monitor these fundamentals and not, very importantly, not let share prices drive the narrative of these businesses. Yeah, so that's something great because,
0: you know, I think the way I look at volatility as well, if, if it's there, I think it provides us buying opportunities and overall, if we have something called a holding power, things would pan out well. But I, I guess for us to write through volatility, first, we have to buy some of the companies you had mentioned earlier with a skilled uh, network impacts and and whatnot, right? Otherwise, if it's poor quality company, I think uh, they will not be able to uh, rebound itself. So in preparation for this podcast, I found out that you have several interviews done on YouTube as well. I want to take this opportunity to ask you one very popular topic among uh, investors. Should they invest in China or Hong Kong stocks? Thomas, I will not hold you to it, but uh, just hearing your opinion because we have seen how Chinese government have clamped down on Alibaba's activities. Several Chinese companies like Meizuan, Tencent are donating to a cost named the Common Prosperity Fund. And there's a lot of uncertainty right now for many investors while looking to get exposure to China. And all of us have seen how volatile Chinese stocks are. In fact, Alibaba is down at, at some point close to its IPO uh, price. And that was very unsettling for some investors. So what's your view? Do you think it's a risk or do you think it's a opportunity?
1: Right. Yes. So this period has been really crazy, isn't it? Like so many things um, has happened and it's easy for things to get lost in translation. So for the common prosperity, is a very interesting one. And Xi Jinping, he actually published an essay on this. Uh, it's called... 脱时推动,共同富裕 And what, at the essence of what he's trying to do, right, is he's trying to grow China's middle class. He's very worried. In his essay, he actually mentioned Tangping. I'm not sure if you have heard about it. Laying flat, right? Because the youth of today is, they're they're not exactly super driven because they don't feel like opportunities are there for them, which is actually not limited to what China is singing. Uh, It's very common in East Asia, like Japan and South Korea, right? Whereby the youth are, are not motivated. And he's very worried that the the Chinese in the more rural areas are not catching up. One of the biggest problems he cited was unequal opportunity to education and property. And so I would be very careful of entering companies that are very heavily dependent on these two sources. When it comes to edutech and property-related businesses, but when we look at technology, I believe that technology is an equalizer, right? When we look at the Western world, companies such as Facebook, Shopify, they really help small, medium businesses to flourish. And even in China, when we look at companies like Pinduoduo or even Alibaba or JD, you know that what what they are doing is they're helping a lot of these small businesses get online and they give them opportunities to, to sell. But the problem comes when these big techs, because it is such a competitive landscape, they start to overreach, right? And, and this is the nature of companies. When it comes to capitalism, if you don't hold them in check, they will always push boundaries. And for the longest time, the, com- the, the Chinese government haven't been holding them in check. And you know, they really just optimize for revenue and there's some negative spillover effects. So I look at companies like Tencent, right? They are developing amazing games. So amazing that China used, they are the highest spender of games in the entire world, right? Several times that of other countries rather play games not study. Government doesn't want that. And when we look at Alibaba, it is good that commerce, they want domestic consumption to increase. But the problem comes when they're encouraging these young consumers to start taking that. So the biggest problem with N Financial is Huapei and Xiebei, which translate into just spend and just borrow. And the problem with their advertising slogans, right? And and they constantly pump out advertisement that encourage youth of today to borrow money in order to live a lifestyle they cannot afford. It is not to borrow money for education. It is not to borrow money to start um, a business or even to just, you know, or for any useful purposes. You know, the advertisement is your girlfriend wants a holiday. Are you going to meet up to her expectations? You know, which is which is just horrible, right? Then, then there's also another advertisement like. Your daughter deserves to be treated like a princess. Look at other people's daughter. You know, they're having this kind of life. You should give your daughter just just borrow, you know, so they can give your daughter treat your daughter like the princess she should be. So so this kind of things is not good for society, right? Making sure that credit is available to the the lower tier cities is important and they do have the technology to enable that. But what the government don't want to do is that um, you do it at the expense of getting more and more people in debt. So a lot of these common prosperity measures, right? I, I wouldn't strictly call them a donation because a tax, increasing tax would be a much better way to do it, right? If they want to just take money. If they just increase tax on all these big tech, I would be very concerned. But this common prosperity is what the government is trying to do is they're trying to steer their investment rather than just optimizing for revenue growth. They want them to optimize for revenue growth in a more social a socially acceptable manner. So for example, Tencent is coming up with games that makes education fun, like learn science, et cetera. I haven't seen a game yet, but I assume they are one of the best at creating games, right? They should be slightly successful in making learning about science or geography fun. And then we look at Alibaba. They are committing to really developing, setting up the digital infrastructure in the lower tier cities, trying to get them to sell to the higher tier city and trying to get them to sell abroad. So the thing about this is profitability-wise, this may not be the best thing that for these companies, but doesn't mean that it would not be profitable for them. Common prosperity, what it means is they want them to do something that is good for both the company and also good for society. Ideally, they want to achieve a win-win situation. Yeah. And, and when we look at this, right, a lot of companies in the US have to pay something similar to. And, and that's not just antitrust. Like when we look at Google, right, they're always paying billions to Apple. When we look at this common prosperity, it is about 20 billion US dollar over five years. Just this year, Google is rumored to pay Apple 15 billion just to remain as the default search engine. Right. and and this is really um, the cost of business and all over the world right it will come in different different forms as investors we must be wary that the Chinese government will may reach in but investing is all about probability right um, the range of outcomes that could happen and I, I think personally for me that the government will not want to make them unprofitable because capitalism or profitability entrepreneurship is still important to for china to innovate um, because anything that's government control right we will not innovate
0: wow that's a lot of unique perspective and i think some of the things you mentioned even the normal investors out there they may not know and i think you have done like great deal of research into it so you know let's wrap this question up right so do you see it as a, risk or a opportunity
1: um, <laughs> i don't mind sharing i i see it as an opportunity but i i position size them to about 20 percent of my portfolio yeah yeah
0: all right cool Well, I have one more question um, that's uh, really at the top of uh, investors' mind. So this argument has been around for a long, long time. So many investors have been arguing that the stock market is very expensive. Uh, It was said uh, two years ago, a year ago, and even right now, the stock market is really expensive. So I think one of the common measurements investors use is the S&P 500 uh, P ratio. Right now, it's about 27 to 29 times its earnings. All interest rates are are all-time low today, Uh, Do you have a personal view on the valuations of the stock market? Or that's something that you don't try to uh, predict
1: but instead you focus on the companies that you're looking at right now? Yeah, I'm sure you get this question all the time also. And I'm I'm always telling my friends if do you guys need to start investing back in 2016 2017 2018 and they're always telling me hey, the stock market is 20 20 over 25 times p ratio and they'll always bring up the shiller p ratio but here's the thing at the turn of year 2000 there's there's a, there's a few good reasons for this right like we start to see intangibles investment outstripping tangible investment and there's accounting implications to this because when companies are investing in intangibles, right, it will depress their earnings compared to companies, the more traditional companies that are spending on investing in tangible. So when a company heavily invests in marketing, for example, Apple, right? They have to recognize the expense, everything up front. So that depress their earnings as compared to a traditional company that, that buy property or equipment, you know, they're able to recognize the expense over five to 10 years. So their earnings looks a bit higher, but in, and in fact, these um, companies like Apple, Facebook, Google, they're way more profitable than companies of the past. And when we talk about P ratio, it is really a function of like um, the profile of these companies, right? And today we look at the S&P 500 about 50% of them is made up of Microsoft, Apple, Amazon, Facebook, and Google. And so these companies have written on invested capital profile that no companies of the past have seen before. And you know, they are able to grow for such a long period that no other big companies have been able to do so before. Like Amazon, I think they are growing at close to 30% for more than 30% for two decades or something like that. So when we talk about P-Ratio, we cannot just take at face value, like all the journalists, they they will always say P-Ratio is at record high, but they never explore like why it is at record high. So usually for me, when I invest, I I don't think that it's super overvalued when it comes to the S&P 500. It's definitely not cheap, but it's not super overvalued. Either uh, I would usually just focus on the individual companies I'm looking at, and and that is where I make my investment decisions.
0: You know, I I think uh, I I share a similar uh sentiments with you. Certain things are beyond our control, but what we can control, I think those are areas where we want to spend our productive time on. You know, to really you know generate returns for our own portfolio. So Thomas, I'm going to try something new uh for my podcast uh, this time round. We're going to do a bonus round of questions. So just share with us your choice and you know share with us why. So Tom's, are you ready? Yeah, let's go. <laughs> Alright, cool. So what's your
1: favorite book? Favorite book? Um, I would say investing wise, it's gotta be The Joys of Compounding by Gotham Bit. Any reasons why? He's just a very generous writer, right? Because his book is no fluff. It's all his investing notes from over the years. And, and I really appreciate that. Um, someone who goes into the detail and shares so many things. And I, I really like reading, not just what he writes, but also his appendix. So one thing I do when I read books is if it's a, is if it a very good book, I will go to the appendix and I will sieve out all the different um, other content like research papers or you know just other books. And I was able to get a lot of gems uh, from that book alone.
0: Nice. All right. Next question. Would you ever invest in cryptocurrencies?
1: Yeah. What a so, question? So this one, uh, never say no, right? I'm always looking to learn, unlearn, and relearn. So if one day I change my mind about crypto, who knows, right? <laughs>
0: All right. I, I think I share the same sentiment. So next question, what is the country that you learn to travel to after uh, COVID-19?
1: Yeah, I'm looking at um. Next year, I'm actually looking to maybe go to Taiwan or Japan. But if you are going to America, do remember <laughs> to chill. You know, uh, we can we can go together. All right, awesome. And
0: also, uh, you have mentioned that you go to the gym as well in the earlier part of the podcast. So is there a favorite kind of a workout exercise you do? And, and why is that your favorite workout?
1: Yeah, so I, I like to do... So I I I was a basketball player Uh, when I was in university, right? And when COVID shut down, the basketball activity went down. So my, my favorite exercises is mainly compound exercises, which is like your deadlifts, squats, pull-ups, etc. Because those are highly efficient workouts and they target a lot of your major muscle groups.
0: All right, nice. So now with that final question I have for you is how can investors find out more about you?
1: Yeah, so the best place to find me is at steadycompounding.com. And also you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Steady Compound. All right. And also Thomas, any final words to share with the listeners with regards to
0: investing and you know obtaining a success in life?
1: Yeah, one thing I would like to share is I think what you and Jonathan is doing is amazing, right? Spending the time to teach a lot of not just your readers, but also people who who sign up for your masterclass, you know, because it is not easy to condense so much investing knowledge and mental models into digestible content. And what is most important about investing is not about, uh, it, it is important, all the financial statements and ratios and whatnot. But I feel that the most important thing and what you guys are delivering is actually the pattern recognition of highly successful companies. How to spot them when they are still young, you know, and at times still unprofitable. And that is where we really have to dive into not just the qualitative factors, but also how to look at the unit economics of the company. So I just want to say like good job to both you and Jonathan for putting this out there for a lot of Singaporeans and, you know, people from all over the world. I really like this slogan, putting one investor at every household.
0: Oh, Thomas, thanks so much for the uh, kind compliments. All right, with that, everyone, I'd like to thank uh, Thomas for appearing on our podcast and sharing with us his life story and many investing lessons. And if you have enjoyed this podcast, please go ahead and share with uh, more of your friends as well. So Thomas, once again, thanks for appearing
1: on this podcast. Thanks for having me, man.
0: Thank you for listening to the Growth Investing Secrets podcast. If you like this podcast, do leave us a review and share this podcast with your friends on social media. Don't forget to tag me as well at Investor on Instagram. As always, say no to lousy companies and only buy into the best growth companies in the world. And I'll see you in the next episode.